listen to an extra, somewhat shorter episode of the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Before we get started, though, don't forget that On Becoming has a presence on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Please do send your questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. If any of what I've been saying resonates with you, I invite you to support the podcast on Patreon. The web address is patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast, but you can also access it through Twitter, again, at onbecomingpod. You will see that there are various levels of support possible. Friend of the pod, student of the academy, philosopher in training, disillusioned scholar, and overachiever. You can find all of those at Patreon. So far, I haven't had an episode on a specific event, let alone a political event, and the fact that I've decided to do one now might surprise you. ...things, including the state of American evangelicalism, the current Republican Party, the issue of race, and the question of what it means to be a Christian. Walker's claim to fame is that he played American football for 12 seasons. Perhaps I'm missing something, but as far as I can tell, he doesn't have any obvious qualifications to be a senator. Of course, lack of qualifications hasn't kept people from becoming senators, or presidents for that matter. Walker claims that he graduated in the top 1% of his class at the University of Georgia, but it turns out that he never graduated at all. Maybe he was in the top 1% of people who merely wished they had finished their degree. Instead, he left college to play for the NFL, probably a good move financially. In contrast, Walker's opponent, Raphael Warnock, received his bachelor's degree from Morehouse College, a well-known historically black school, and then earned three graduate degrees, a master's in divinity, a master's in philosophy, and a PhD in systematic theology from Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Thus, simply in terms of education, there's really no contest between Walker and Warnock. Further, Warnock has the distinction of being the senior pastor at the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church. That church was previously pastored by Martin Luther King Sr. and then by Martin Luther King Jr. But as you may have noticed, there have been a number of, how shall we say, interesting developments in the race. Walker is running as a Republican who claims that abortion is always wrong and that exceptions for things like rape and incest shouldn't count as exceptions. But it's come to light that Walker paid for an abortion for an ex-girlfriend. We know that because she has a receipt for the abortion, a check received from Walker, and a Get Wells card signed by him. Just that little bit of information gives one pause, though it should not be surprising. In the previous episode, I claimed that many people who claim to be against abortion tend not to follow their own moral prescription when it comes to their own daughters, girlfriends, and wives. Of course, Walker has claimed that these allegations are totally false, though then it's hard to know what to make of the check and the Get Well card, both signed by him. What makes the story even more interesting is that Walker's son, Christian, has tweeted that his father, and now I'm quoting, threatened to kill us and had us move over six times in six months, running from your violence. And Christian has said even more. Again, speaking of his father, he says, 
family values people. He has four kids, four different women. Wasn't in the house raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. Do you care about family values? I take it that Christian's question is meant rhetorically. Walker's ex-wife has claimed that he held a gun to her head and threatened to kill her, which doesn't sound much like adhering to family values. Of course, the Republican stand for what they call family values has not always matched the values that they live out in practice. You may remember that Newt Gingrich was one of the people pushing hard to impeach Bill Clinton for having relations, I leave that purposely vague, with Monica Lewinsky. Many conservatives thought, rightly, that what Clinton did was immoral. However, it was at the same time that Gingrich was married to a second wife, whom he asked if it was okay with her that he had a mistress. Just to be clear, this wasn't a theoretical question. His mistress at the time was Callista Beck, who's now his third wife. He claimed that Callista was open-minded on the issue, and quoting her, he said, she doesn't care what I do. Gingrich's wife described it this way, and here I'm quoting from her. He wanted an open marriage, and I refused. So Gingrich divorced wife number two and then gave an impassioned speech a couple days later condemning liberals for advocating policies that were harming families and children. Given that Gingrich had cheated on both his first and second wives, looking in the mirror for the cause of the breakdown of the family values would have been helpful. Of course, I've always wondered what family values really means. In the abstract, the term provides the kind of warm, fuzzy feelings like ideas of motherhood and apple pie. But it really just means having a family in which dad run things and mom just has to put up with whatever it is he wants. It's worth noting here that Paige Patterson, a major figure in Southern Baptist circles, would counsel wives who are being beaten by their husbands to stay in the marriage and pray for their husbands. Unfortunately, family values seems to be code for white patriarchy. This is why being a feminist goes against family values, because such women are putting that hierarchy into question. And although I'm white and a man, the fact that I'm queer is even worse than being a feminist. When I taught my feminist philosophy course back in the day, I had students read a chapter that showed how patriarchy was deeply connected to misogyny, racism, and homophobia. One has to see that they all go together, because women are supposed to obey their husbands, and people of color need to know their place, that is, as inferior to white people. Note, too, that some versions of family values are fine with men sleeping around, since they're the ones in power, and they have the right to do so. The problem with gay men is that they threaten the hierarchy from inside of the hierarchy, which is why they're so feared. In this respect, it's interesting that Walker's son Christian says he's attracted to men, but he doesn't like the term gay. Here's a direct quote from him. Don't call. Don't, don't put that ghetto G word on me. I just like masculine men. I'm not a, I don't want to be lumped in with the rainbow people. Gay conserve. I'm not a gay conservative. I'm a conservative who likes men. To be clear, even though Christian does not claim the word gay, he clearly counts as a homosexual. As it turns out, there are lots of conservatives that like men, 
and we normally call such conservatives women. But when a man likes other men, you know, in that way, we usually use the term gay. When Christian says he just likes masculine men, it sounds a little bit like a grinder description of men looking for other men who are straight acting. It's not clear what Walker Sr. thinks of his son being, well, almost gay. But he clearly has views on transgender kids. As he puts it, Jesus may not recognize you because he made you a boy. He made you a girl. Wait, did Walker really say that? I assume the listener has to conclude that the word you in these two different sentences refers to different people. But then one has to also wonder about Jesus' facial recognition skills. Perhaps the most interesting part about all of this, once the revelation came out about Walker funding an abortion, he promptly received a half million dollars worth of donations to his campaign. Then there was a prayer luncheon attended by 250 evangelicals in which Walker talked about forgiveness and having been saved by grace. But probably the most revealing thing is what the conservative Dana Lush said in response. I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. Sometimes people aren't quite honest about what they really want, but that's a very revealing statement. It's all about power, the right to rule over other people and be able to tell them, particularly women, what they can and cannot do with their bodies. You may well know that Herschel is black, and so is Warnock. So it's not a race between a person of color and a white guy, which means you may think that race doesn't really play any role. But I think it does. The difference between them is that Walker has been endorsed by Trump, a powerful white man. In other words, he's been given a blessing by a white guy. Warnock, on the other hand, has no such endorsement from a white strongman. He's running without the permission of a big white guy. My experience of evangelicalism is strangely similar. When I went up for tenure, which is the process in which a university or college either decides to let you keep your job or tells you to leave, I too had to get the blessing of a big white guy. Well, actually two big white guys. The difference is simple. If you think God is on your side, then anything can be justified. Dostoevsky famously made the claim that if there is no God, then everything is permitted. But it's just the opposite. If you believe that you are doing God's work or carrying out God's will, anything can be justified. And that also explains how Republicans can paint Warnock as anti-American. The black theologian Willie James Jennings points out that White Americans are free to be critical of their country, but that freedom is denied to black Americans, particularly black religious figures. I think Jennings is 100% correct. But the problem is that the criticism of people like Warnock is also based on the fact that white evangelical churches feel that they have the power to define what true Christianity is. I remember sitting in a room with about 15 faculty colleagues all of whom were white, with one exception, who felt it was their place to determine which varieties of evangelicalism in the global South, Africa, and Asia were truly Christian. I actually spoke up and made that point. There was an awkward silence. It was awkward because people didn't like me saying that, but they also knew that it was completely true. 
A Christian podcaster named Ali Beth Stuckey has labeled Warnock's version of Christianity a social justice moralism, as if that's somehow a bad thing. She claims that according to Warnock, and here I'm quoting from her, Jesus is not a savior, but a liberator, and not from sin, but from systems. Jesus slash Christianity is a means to their political and social activist ends, which they like to categorize as helping others. What they typically mean is government programs. I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll say it again. Evangelicals aren't really familiar with what the Bible says. When Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, he is criticizing the religious system of his day. Yes, he was criticizing individual people, but he was also criticizing the religious establishment. If that doesn't qualify as a system, then I don't really know what does. Further back in the 19th century, when white people like William Wilberforce were criticizing slavery, they were criticizing a system. Slavery wouldn't have been possible without a system to make it work. Her read of his idea of helping others as simply code for government assistance to the poor is cynical in the extreme. But it's even more remarkable that she's criticizing him for using the government to help people when she's advocating the use of the government to limit people, specifically in regard to abortion. But there's another aspect here that needs attention. In early April of 2021, Warnock tweeted the following statement. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we're able to save ourselves. Warnock was quickly attacked for that statement by, among others, someone named Jenna Ellis, who is perhaps best known for being hired as a legal advisor to Donald Trump in 2019. Ellis condemned the statement publicly as heresy and a false gospel. She suggested that Warnock should, and again I'm quoting, delete Reverend in front of his name. But she wasn't alone in that criticism. Someone named Debbie Dooley, who is identified as the president of the Atlanta Tea Party, posted a Bible verse in response to Warnock. It's from the book of Ephesians, which Maybe a letter that was actually written by the Apostle Paul, though scholars are deeply divided as to the book's authorship. But let's just assume it's by Paul. Here's what he says, and since Dooley quotes from the King James Version, I'll do so as well. For by grace are ye saved by faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Obviously, Dooley thinks that Warnock's statement somehow contradicts that statement by Paul. But exactly how does it contradict what Paul says? At least as far as I can see, Warnock's statement only says that the meaning of Easter goes beyond the resurrection. But what does he mean that by helping others, we can save ourselves? Well, think about how things actually get done. If we say that Jesus will save us, how does that work practically? Perhaps one could argue that there are special circumstances in which Jesus personally intervenes in people's lives. But most of the time, people get helped by other people, which is why we have doctors and hospitals. It's also why we have food banks and why the Catholic charities play a huge role in keeping people alive. Jehovah's Witnesses reject blood transfusions on the basis of how they read the Bible. 
but most of us would be quite happy to accept blood from a donor if we needed it. You see the point? It would be very strange to say that since Jesus saves us, then there's no need for medical attention or providing food to the hungry. Fortunately, many Christians have long believed that part of following Jesus is to do what he said we should do, feed the hungry, visit people in prison, take care of the stranger. Well, that seems to imply is that somehow, if Jesus saves us, then we don't need to do anything. We just need to wait for him to show up. <laughs> but as we've seen, Jesus actually talks about those in need being cared for by others. And he says that, in effect, those deeds have been done to him. That would seem to imply that Jesus is there all along and expects his followers to act. And this point, I think, leads to a much more interesting question, one that deeply connects with my podcast overall. Warnock is being criticized for being a religious radical. But isn't that what Jesus was? And further, are we to conclude that following Jesus is merely about listening to what he said and simply doing that? Or does following Jesus require going beyond what Jesus says by raising questions and addressing issues that Jesus either didn't or couldn't have raised in his time, but that still resonate with the logic of what would Jesus do? That question can be traced back to Charles Sheldon's book, In His Steps, which is subtitled, What Would Jesus Do? The book was first published in 1896 and has sold millions of copies. You might be interested to know that it's a somewhat modified form of a very old question. The second century Stoic Epictetus suggested that we should ask, what would Socrates or Zeno have done in these circumstances in order to figure out the right thing to do? Jesus was in the business of questioning systems. Before him, Socrates had something eerily similar happen to him in Athens. That's why they were both eventually killed. They were putting the systems of their day into question, and it made the establishment wary. Warnock follows in their footsteps by asking similar questions, ones that go to the very heart of the hierarchy. Perhaps the most radical thing Jesus not only said, but did, was to subvert the hierarchy by associating with prostitutes and tax collectors. We think of the parable of the Good Samaritan as a nice story about doing something kind. But the reality was that Jews looked down their noses at Samaritans as inferior. Jesus inverts the hierarchy. The context for that story is this. A lawyer had asked Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds by saying that he needed to love God and love his neighbor as himself. But the lawyer wanted to, as the Bible passage puts it, justify himself. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? Without any further explanation, Jesus launches into the story. There was a man who had been robbed and beaten, leaving him half dead. Along comes a priest, but he doesn't want to get involved, so he passes him by on the other side of the road. Then a Levite comes along, and he does exactly the same thing. You should know that in the Jewish hierarchy of the day, both of them were high up in the hierarchy. They were expected to set an example for others to follow, but they failed to do what they should have done, which is, of course, help the man. Instead, the person who actually did the right thing was the one no one would have expected to do so, someone who was despised, 
probably even by the very person whom he stops to help. Jesus is clearly attacking a system in which the concept of neighbor only extends to people just like us. At the end of the story, Jesus simply asks a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer replied, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus' simple response was, go and do likewise. You've been listening to On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Don't forget that you can find us on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. You can reach me at OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. And you can support the podcast at Patreon. Please join me for the next episode on the way that sport today has become the de facto religion in our time.